Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Christian McBurney, author of George Washington's Nemesis. Christian McBurney, author of George Washington's Nemesis, The Outrageous Treason and Unfair Court Martial of Major General Charles Lee During the Revolutionary War. What attracted you to Charles Lee to write about him? He's a fascinating individual. Uh, he was the best educated general in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. He had the most military experience, but he was also erratic uh, and uh, may have suffered from bipolar disorder, for example but incredibly sarcastic with his superiors when he started out with the uh, French and Indian War, for example. He called uh, Sir Geoffrey uh, Amherst, the leader of the British forces, a stupid blunderer and our booby in chief. And when I read that, I said, this guy has a good way with words. So he, he, uh, he interested me right away. This is your second book that you've written about him. That's right. The, the first one, it was about Charles Lee's kidnapping and uh, his time as a captive. Uh, and then um, because uh, the Americans wanted a major general to exchange for Charles Lee, a obscure Rhode Islander managed to uh, take a boat with 45 men, go over Narragansett Bay onto uh, where the island where Newport, Rhode Island is, where the British occupied it at that time, surrounded a farmhouse and snatched a British major general from that house and got back all without a shot being fired. Oh, they targeted somebody just so they would have somebody to exchange That's with right. Charles Lee? Yeah, yeah. So it's a fun, fun story. But I didn't get into his treason in that book. In this book, I start with his treason and then also get into the, uh, his generalship at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. Well, for people who don't know, what was his role in the Continental Army? He was uh, second in command. Uh, his background was he was English. He's not related to the Lees from Virginia. Uh, and he, uh, his father was well-born, which is important in British society. He did receive excellent education, some of it in Switzerland, France and he served as an officer in the British Army. He, was a he rose to the level of lieutenant colonel, which is a pretty high position in, that, in the British Army. Uh, and he, uh, uh, during the French and Indian War, he served in the United States, or what would become the United States. Served well, but he got in all these sarcastic arguments with his superiors. Uh, he went back and fought in Portugal in the Seven Years' War and did well there. But he didn't get his promotion to lieutenant colonel right away, so he was upset. Then he became a soldier of fortune. He went to Russia, Poland, Turkey. So he gained a lot of experience. He had more experience than any American uh, general. And um, he was upset at the king, even insulted him in a face-to-face -face meeting because he w wasn't, um, felt he, his an obligation to uh, promote him to lieutenant colonel wasn't met. And he was a Republican. You could be an English Republican, not believe in royal government. What did that, that mean, a Republican in England? It meant you know, why do we have a king uh, ruling over us? He's inherited uh, his family, you know, his family came over, uh, like Thomas uh, Paine said, you know, he was a bunch of banditti came over from Normandy and called themselves king. And, uh, you know, there should be uh, uh, ruled by the people and, and not by a king. So he did believe in that. And in 1773, he decided, 
I'm going to move to America. Where liberty is, that's where my home is. And he immediately made a big impression. He wrote a very important pamphlet, one of the most popular of the times in 1774, which argued that American militiamen, Minutemen, can fight on the same ground as British and can beat them as the British regular army. And he said Americans were used to handling weapons and uh, you know, used to handling work in the fields, whereas the British you know, didn't grow up handling weapons. And so, uh, and he thought men fighting for the liberty could you know, defeat the British army. What would he have been like to be around? Uh, it would have been interesting. It's always, it was always a, some kind of a controversy going on. And uh, he did have a small circle of loyal aides throughout his, his time. Uh, but by the end, he was almost alone. He had insulted so many of them. I want to read you something. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> You're right. He had a reputation for unrefined, aggressive, quarrelsome, and vindictive behavior. He earned notoriety for unrestrained language and his criticism of his superiors. Judge Thomas Jones, a New York loyalist and historian, wrote that compared to other British officers in the French and Indian War, the quarrelsome, satirical, and abusive Lee was under more arrests, had more court-martials held upon him, and more courts of inquiry into his conduct than all the other officers in the Army put together. He was known by some by the name of Mad Lee. <laughs> and yet he emerged as a, as a leader. Well, he did have a lot of military experience. Uh, he, he definitely came with baggage. There are some people who are institutions who just cause a lot of trouble. They're brilliant, really know their business, but they cause a lot of trouble and controversies and always looking for fights and challenging people. And Lee was one of those guys. But he, he did do, uh, serve well first in, in the, at first in the Revolutionary War for the Continental Army. He was selected as the uh, number three um, Continental uh, Senior General in the Continental Army. June 1775. Interesting story behind that. <clears throat> of course, he wanted to be number one, but he wasn't an American born, so Washington, George Washington, was selected. He wanted to be number two. But at the time in New England, New England had most of the army in the field. They were surrounding Boston trying to drive the British out, and the general in command there was Artemis Ward. And so Congress picked Ward to be number two, and Lee was number three, and Lee lashed out. Uh, Ward is nothing but a fat old church warden who knows nothing about military matters. You know, <laughs> he always has a, cent a certain amount of truth in what he says, but he's a little harsh. And eventually, Ward, mostly due to health, retired. So Lee became number two to Washington. Did Lee have allies in the Continental Congress? He did. He did because he was a radical. Uh, some of the other radicals kind of uh, uh, went to him as well, so they had had that in common. When he showed up one day and said, okay, I want to be in your army, what, what did they do with him? Well, uh, when he came over in 1774, he made the rounds. He traveled up and down the coast. He met with radical Republican, uh, uh, you know, with rebel leaders, you know, from Richard Henry Lee in Virginia to the Adams and uh, uh, John Adams and um, Abigail Adams and Mercy Warren and James Warren up in Massachusetts. They all comment on him that he was you know, very... Uh, you know, pro-Republican, uh, but uh, could be very, uh, 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 very caustic in his comments. So. so when when they gave him his commission, when he was third in charge, what was his job? At first, it was to uh, help command the troops around Boston, and he took over one of the divisions, 
and it did a good job. And he helped train two important generals who become important major generals, Nathaniel Green and John Sullivan. And after that, he uh, went to New York at Washington's request because Washington figured, well, at some point the British are going to try to invade New York. So he, he uh, fortified the defenses there. And it was very difficult uh, uh, for Americans throughout the war, especially in New York, because the British Navy was so much more powerful than the American Navy. It wasn't even close. So because the British could control the waters around New York, they really could come easily invade New York. So it was a difficult task to defend New York, but he did his best to set up the forts. Uh, was he in many battles? Uh, no, and that was uh, one of the issues at, that we'll get to in Monmouth. He actually didn't have a lot of experience commanding large numbers of troops in battle. It's interesting, you also write he had a penchant for intrigue, sarcasm, and a biting satire, as well as a tendency to argue and criticize his superiors. Although he could be composed, brilliant, and a courageous leader in battle, he could not be relied upon when not in the field. So he was calm when the shooting was going on? Yes. Um, <clears throat> when he was in battle, he was very calm. For example, at Charleston, uh, after New York, he went down to Charleston, and he commanded, in, technically, he was the commander of the defenses down there. The British sent a pretty powerful navy, and Clinton, Henry Clinton with, came with an armed force, and it looked like Charleston wouldn't have a chance. Uh, defenses were set up. Lee helped to organize the defenses. But mostly it was a local affair. There were local colonels uh, controlling the defenses, and, and Lee didn't impose himself too much. So he was very composed in that, in that situation. He did suggest that at Fort Moultrie, you ought to abandon it because if the British get around to the side, to your unprotected side, they're just going to blow everyone out of the water, but uh, they ignored him. The South Carolinians ignored him. Now, during the battle, the British couldn't get around because of some sandbars, and so they actually suffered quite a bit. Lee walked, when the British were firing all their cannons, he walked right across the field as if nothing was happening. The aides were ducking, and, and uh, they were very impressed by his calm, cool composure. How did he get along with George Washington? At first, well, at first, well. Um, but uh, he always, you know, Washington was uh, not as well educated. Uh, Washington was largely self-taught. He was pretty good at math, but other things he was self-taught, but incredibly self-disciplined. That He taught himself good manners, for example. Uh, but they, uh, Washington appreciated his military experience, and uh, Lee was good at first, but then things started to fall apart. Shall we talk about that? Well, was that, did they fall apart before or after he was a, a POW? Just before. What caused it? Well, Lee came back from Charleston. He was given a lot of credit for the victory at Charleston, the American victory at Charleston, even though it was really a victory of the South Carolinians, uh, Colonel Moultrie and others. Uh, but he got the reflected glory, and so they sent him up to New York, where Washington was finally trying to defend against an invasion by the British Army, Sir William Howe. But, uh, you know, in, in uh, August of 1776, Washington's army at the Battle of Brooklyn was smashed and pell-mell in retreat. They barely survived the, the being destroyed uh, on Brooklyn Heights, but got across the water onto Manhattan at night. Uh, then we're pretty easily driven out of Manhattan, except for Fort Washington uh, in the northern part of Manhattan. My daughter used to live pretty close to there. And uh, uh, the Americans decided to uh, keep the fort there even though it was nothing else there, and you're on an island. And uh, Washington agreed with Nathaniel Green to 
stay there, but it was a mistake, and the British easily overran it, and more than 2,800 uh, Americans were taken prisoner and put in terrible prisons in, in New York City. So um, and then Washington was driven out of New Jersey by Howe's uh, commander, Cornwallis. Lee was given a command of some troops, 7,000 troops in northern New York, just in case Howe turned to New England. So he had some troops uh, that Washington now wanted to use. Washington's behind the Delaware River, please, and, and he's su suggesting to Lee, please come over and march your men over to join me so we can stop Howe from taking over Philadelphia, which looked like that was going to happen. Uh, but Lee kind of slow played it. Uh, he had decided that Washington was not the commander who was going to win the war. He lost confidence in Washington. And, and I go through this in my first book, Kidnapping the Enemy, that you mentioned. Uh, I think he slow played joining Washington in the hopes that maybe Washington might get defeated. Then he would have the top, he would have the best army and he'd be the top commander. Maybe he could take Washington's place. So he delayed sending his men over, but not so much that he uh, uh, you know, violated uh, an order. Washington really didn't issue an order. He was not real confident at this time and didn't want to demand that Lee come over, kind of suggesting it. But then he started to demand, and Lee then started to make his way, but very slow. He'd, you know, six miles a day they'd march, or ten miles a day, not, not, nothing impressive. Did Lee ever suffer any consequences for that? No, because he was uh, he was um, captured shortly thereafter. Mm. What happened was, uh, on his way to the Delaware, uh, he was three miles behind his men, the bulk of his 5,000 men. And he decided to stay at a uh, tavern in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. And uh, coincidentally, at that time, a party of British dragoons was uh, riding up from Pennington, New Jersey, to reconnoiter. They heard that Lee was in the neighborhood. They wanted to find out where he was. And as often in the case, uh, the people know everything. And some of the people are Tories. And the Tories told the British dragoons, led by uh, William Harcourt, that Lee was in the neighborhood. So they changed their mission. And uh, Bannister Tarleton, one of the leading cavalry officers in the war, uh, man uh, led the small party and surrounded his tavern. There was a brief fight. Two of his uh, Lee's men were killed, and they captured him. Where did they take him? They took him uh, first to Pennington, then Brunswick, then to New York City. And in New York City, uh, he was uh, confined to a room, uh, two rooms, uh, for six months. He, they brought in nice meals. They didn't torture him. Interestingly, uh, when you were an officer in general, you got to roam a city freely. Like if you were in Boston, you would see British officers walking around during the daytime. They had to go back to their house at night, and same with Americans. American officers were allowed in New York City, Continental officers, and, uh, they, and then they, but they had to go back to their room at night. Lee was not allowed to do that because uh, General Howe thought he might be a traitor because he had been a lieutenant colonel in the British Army. And uh, actually, that concerned Lee because one time Lee sent Howe a note asking to see him, and it was returned to Lieutenant Colonel Lee. And well, you know what that meant. They still considered him Lieutenant Colonel, and here he was taking up arms against the king. Was his capture considered a devastating loss for the Continental Army? 
Among many, it was. I mean, he was seen as one of the top <coughs> generals. Uh, Washington was not doing well at the time. It was uh, one of these cascading of events. But uh, then came the Battle of Trenton, brilliant victory at Trenton, and then Washington followed that up with a great victory at Princeton. And so that really reinstilled confidence in the patriot cause at a key time. Lee wasn't there to appreciate that. He didn't appreciate that, that, uh, that there was this resurgence and, and uh, vigor for the liberty so, as, as a prisoner, could, could he write letters? Could he communicate with the, the, the rebels? Uh, he had, he, he, only with permission could he write le letters. And um, he, he didn't write too many. He wrote mostly to the British commanders on negotiating a peace, so we can get to that next. Yeah, would you talk about that? Because you, you have him trying to make peace between the two sides. Sure. Uh, he uh, had a big change of mindset. At first, he was very defensive. Oh, I'm representing him when he was a prisoner. I'm representing the best cause in the history of mankind. But then he started to change his mindset. Before, he had been a strong Republican. He had actually been one of the first patriots to really push for Declaration of Independence, months before it was, it was declared. But now he changed his tune. Now he decided the Americans could not win the war. Uh, he didn't believe in Washington. And their next best general was him. And he was a capture. He was a capture. Uh, capture general, not likely to be released anytime soon. So um, he thought the best thing to do was to end the war. He thought that uh, the Americans should renounce the Declaration of Independence and uh, return to crown rule. It would save blood on both sides. Did he start communicating that idea to to the uh, Continental Congress? He did. The first thing he did was in, in February, he was captured in, in, the, in, in November, but in February he sent, early February, he sent a note to Congress saying he would like a delegation of two or three gentlemen to visit him on a public matter in New York City. Well, from Congress, you know, public, that, means, that can only mean one thing, let's mediate a, a peace. And there was Britain at that point there was only one way to get peace, and that was to renounce the Declaration of Independence. Congress had done that once before, and Lee actually harshly criticized Congress. Lord, and William Howe have no, uh, <coughs> nothing to say in terms of uh, mediation. We should never have shown up at that conference. And the, the John Adams, Ben Franklin, and uh, one other gentleman showed up to meet with Lord Howe in Staten Island. The meeting went nowhere. It was the only time the two sides ever met formally to discuss peace. Is that meeting widely known? Not widely known, but uh, it's, it's not unknown. Uh, and so uh, Congress, knowing that, rejected Lee's overture to send two or three men to, to meet with him. How did Lee spend his time when he was a captive? Uh, thinking about how he could end the war, I guess. I think he must have really thought a lot about his strategy because he always kept his negotiations with British commanders secret. And therefore, he uh, kept his options open. If the British won the war, he would get credit for trying to offer to mediate an end to the war. If the, that didn't work out and he was exchanged back to the Americans, he could return as their number two commander. So he was uh, quite clever in, in, in working things out. So he was not necessarily wanting peace because of saving 
bloodshed and brotherhood, but it was his own benefit. Well, it's not clear exactly why he wanted peace. I personally think um, that his own <laughs> words are uh, very uh, revealing and should be relied upon, not supposition. And if we go to the next uh, effort, the most important one he ever did, I think that's shown. And that is his, uh, he, in, in uh, March of uh, 1777, he wrote a plan, eight-page plan, on how Lord Howe and William Howe could defeat the Americans as quickly as possible in the field. He had a whole strategy. The subtitle of your book says The Outrageous Treason. Is that the outrageous treason? That's the treason. Um, Why did he do that? Well, I, I think bec he said it in the plan. I sincerely and zealously believe that it's best interest of the parties to uh, mediate an end to the war and for America to re renounce the Declaration of Independence and return to crown rule. He wanted to save blood on both sides. He didn't think the Americans could win. Therefore, let's save blood on the American side, let's save blood on, and expense on the British side. And uh, he also thought that the Howes were moderate men and the Americans could get a moderate settlement from them, which he was probably accurate in that point, although the Howes, in fact, had no real authority to negotiate a moderate settlement. The Howes were, were Whigs, you refer to? They, they were also uh, somewhat Whigs, yes. Um, they, neither one really supported the American war, but uh, Lord Howe, Richard Howe was the older brother. And but they he, didn't support the, the British fighting the American war? Initially, that's right. Uh, Lord Richard Howe was the head of the British Navy, and he had a very long distinguished career into the Napoleonic age. And uh, his, his brother, Sir William Howe, was head of the uh, British Army in North America. And uh, William Howe said, I think in the early 1770s, I have no interest in going to America to fight against the Americans. But he was asked by the king, and, and he uh, you know, was patriotic to his country and agreed. Do you think the Howes did not give their all on the British side in fighting the, against the Americans? Uh, that, that's a difficult uh, question to answer. I, th I think they did. Uh, I think William, they were both moderate men. They both liked America. Uh, America had treated their brother very nicely. He was killed in, in battle, and Massachusetts uh, said they wanted to make a, uh, a statue of him, and, and so they appreciated that. Uh, but uh, I think they also realized it was uh, almost like a civil war. So if they were too cruel, they would convert a lot of moderates into uh, rebels. So they had to be careful. Uh, if he had totally crushed the army, uh, maybe um, you know, that would have been bad for future relations and, and, and developing a, as a colony. Um, so I, th I think he wanted to win the war. I thought, I think he, uh, thought he would have a lot of opportunities, but in fact he only had a few and he didn't follow through with them. Number one being uh, especially at the uh, at Brooklyn Heights when he had Washington's army trapped and he delayed uh, a day and um, then Washington's army escaped. Uh, so Charles Lee was a prisoner and he wrote out a plan that was his idea about how to defeat the Continental Army that was his army. That's what right. was in his plan? Well, he, he uh, somehow must have learned that Howe wanted to seize Philadelphia in the, in the coming year, the spring campaign of 1777. And so he uh, 
his plan was uh, to d take a certain number to Alexandria and Annapolis and secure that area, about 4,000 troops, and then march the rest overland to Philadelphia. Nothing that Howe couldn't have figured out himself. Uh, uh, I do have a small chapter in the book. Some people argue that uh, Howe relied on the plan, but that's not true. Howe actually had, uh, had prepared a similar plan months before Lee wrote that out. You also say that some some historians think he might have steered them toward taking Philadelphia because it was bad strategy for the British. Yeah, that's that chapter that uh, exactly that I should have mentioned that, uh, but I, I don't think there's any foundation in that. So you did a lot of reading of other historians' writings on Lee. Are there are people who were staunch defenders of Lee and people who are staunch attackers? Yes, there are, and, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book uh, to be objective. And Lee, with Lee, I think you really have to be objective. I mean, there are some historians who were very much against him and think everything he did was selfish and uh, he was uh, terrible. And there are some who think um, he was uh, everything he did was great. He was a great Republican leader and don't really find too many faults with him. I think you have to look at both. Uh, I think his treason, he committed treason. He committed rank treason. And uh, But that's not the full... Uh, text of a man. I think you have to look at everyone's whole life. One thing I've learned as an historian, you can't just say, well, he did this one bad thing and therefore he's bad for everything. That's not true. He, he actually performed important services during the war, early in the war, and as we'll find out, I think he performed a very important service at the Battle of Monmouth by retreating. Uh, the, the plan he had written out, does, does that still survive? Yes, and I've held it in my hands uh, at the uh, How'd you get to do that? New York uh, Public Library. They still have it. And the interesting story about how it was found, uh, uh, Lee gave it to Henry Strachey, who was the secretary to Lord Howe and William Howe, uh, the peace commissioners, they were called themselves at that time. <clears throat> and uh, one of the issues that a lot of historians haven't emphasized that he committed treason, I'm really the one who's really pushing it, that historians haven't recognized this as much and appreciated it as much as they should have, is because uh, it never was discussed in any British correspondence. It's not even clear that Howe read the document. Uh, didn't, didn't rely on it, That's, I, I don't think. Uh, but still, you can commit treason just by handing over to the other side a treasonous document. A, there was the article of war was you could not correspond with the enemy. That was. Uh, treason. And, and in reality, it had to be treacherous or secret correspondence. This met both standards. Uh, but um, I can't remember what the question was now. <laughs> What's it like to hold a document like that uh, in your hands? It was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And uh, he never signed the document. So I had to compare his handwriting with other letters of his. And New York Public Library had other letters, original letters of his that what he did sign, so you could, I was a, a sleuth, and could compare the two. No one argues that that, that letter was not his. Uh, um, all of his biographies agree. And also that what he states in there is consistent with what he said for 15 months during his captivity. Did the Continental Army ever find out that he had done this? They did not. So I think we were talking about Strachey uh, got the letter, and um, it, it doesn't appear... Uh, that he uh, circulated very widely, and it uh, wasn't even mentioned after the war by any British general, and it was found 75 years later in his family's files. 
in England. And uh, the original letter was the original letter. In no one, no one knew about it. And then it, someone t stole it, apparently, <laughs> and it was sold sold at a British uh, New York auction. Uh, and then uh, the New York Public Library wound up with it. Do you collect documents like that? Are you a collector? I am not because it costs a lot of money. I, I, I um, uh, spend enough on my research. So. You, you have to spend a lot of money to be a collector. These items can be a lot of money these days. So, so uh, you said in the first six months he was confined to an apartment in Manhattan. Where was he the rest of the time? Uh, well, at first, Lord Howe wasn't sure that he should be treated as a traitor because he had served as a lieutenant colonel, and that's why he didn't let him roam around the city. But finally, uh, John Adams in Congress said, if you touch Charles Lee and hang him as a traitor, we're going to do the same for one of your generals. And, uh, and then and Howe also got confirmation from London that Lee, in fact, did resign his post as lieutenant colonel uh, prior to the, uh, prior to his joining the American Army. Well, you're saying here so that so then, then he was allowed after that to um, he was con actually he was confined on a ship for a while too, which he hated, and then that was several months, and then later he was allowed to move in with his friends. He he moved in with his old British officer pals in a house. Um, you say in here that he could have resigned his commission as a general in the Continental Army and signed a pledge not to act against Britain in the war, and he might have been released early from his captivity. That's right. So why didn't he do that if he thought that, that the Continental Army was going to lose? Uh, it's a good question, and I, I think uh, it's because he kept his options open. He didn't tell the Americans that he was negotiating throughout his 15 months with the British about mediating an end to the war. And therefore, he uh, could return to the American Army as a senior general. That's what he most liked, to be a soldier of fortune, a, a general in the field. You mentioned a correspondence back and forth between the, the Continental Congress and the British Army. Was there a lot of that, like they communicated with each other? There were some, particularly between generals and uh, Lord Howe in Washington, for example, or local theaters of war, uh, particularly about prisoner exchanges. That was a, a big area. Technically, you weren't supposed to correspond at all with the enemy, but of course, the, you know, if you were trying to negotiate an exchange of prisoners and doing it in a public way, that wasn't a problem. You write in here, uh, this is your, your words, while Lee committed treason, his conduct was not nearly as dishonorable as Benedict Arnold's or many other turncoats. That, that's, that's not setting the bar very high, is it? No, but it's an important point, I think. Uh, Lee did feel this was, was in the best interest of America, although I guess Arnold did too at one point. Uh, but Arnold took a bribe of 1.2 million, what, what is now 1.2 million dollars of cash. Uh, he went to the other side, to the British Army. He commanded British troops in the field, very effectively I might add, and fought Americans. And then after the war he moved to England. So Lee did none of those. So how did he end up getting freed? Through a prisoner exchange, through the capture general that the Americans had uh, as a result of the capture from Rhode Island, and uh, ultimately he was uh, exchanged in April of 1778. But before that, I do want to emphasize, even after he submitted his plan, he did other writings. He wrote a very long letter in January of 1778 to a British commander in New York City saying, okay, after the Battle of Saratoga, 
maybe the Americans can win, they can just stay away from your army, but I still want to help negotiating a peace because if the Americans win, they're going to have a civil war between the Patriots and the Tories, the Loyalists. So I just think it's best if we end the war. So you, even then he was, as late as January of 1778, he was uh, um, uh, promoting a peace. So he was released and went back to being number two in the Continental Army and he still corresponded with the No, he British? was released in April of 1778. Mm -hmm. So this is in <coughs> January. And also I discovered for the first time, a uh, northern historian discovered it, he met with Sir Henry Clinton, a very high commander of the British Army, and the two had a discussion about promoting a peace. And Clinton wrote some notes you could hardly read and and uh, if you didn't, weren't looking for it exactly, you wouldn't understand what he was saying. But in fact, it was a, a summary of his conversations with Lee. Lee was still trying to press, unwilling to mediate an end of the war. And you say that in, in here, uh, at some point, Charles Lee wrote to Clinton congratulating him on his promotion to be the head of the British Army. And that was after he returned. So he so was even fighting after, on the other side and he congratulated. Yes, the, even after he joined and was exchanged and went back to the Continental Army, he sent two letters, one to Clinton congratulating him on his appointment to the command of the British Army, and another one to a Royal Peace Commissioner who had just arrived from London whose job it was to negotiate with Congress to end the war. No one knows how the correspondence was sent, it was very secret, so here he is. That might be treason too, that he's corresponding with the enemy secretly. And none of that was known in his lifetime? No. How was it found out? Well, uh, with that correspondence, he wrote later correspondence, and they referred to the letters. So we don't actually have the letters, but we have references to them. Now, I'm, I want to make sure I get the sequence correct, but I, I think when he got back to the Continental Army, Washington presided over a ceremony for Lee to take an ironclad oath to swear allegiance to an independent United States and renounce all allegiance, and you said that while he was doing the swearing in, a couple times he took his hand off the Bible. Yes, that's right. And uh, he used to believe in oaths. In Newport, Rhode Island, and in New York City, he was very tough on Tories and insisted that they agree on an oath to support Congress and not to give information to the enemy. But now, again, he changed his mindset, and I think this, this is a story that some people don't know if it's true or not, but I, no reason for Lafayette, who told the story, to lie about it. And it's consistent with Lee's mindset. He joked, well, I'm not, I don't want to be ruled by King George III, but uh, the prince would be okay. So people laughed, and then he finished up the, the, doing the oath. What did Washington's inner circle think of Lee? Uh, uh, Lafayette uh, and Hamilton? Yeah, Hamilton, John Lawrence. They were suspicious of him. They thought he was arrogant and overbearing. Uh, and when Lee came back, it, he had deferred his criticism. It was as if he you know, came back to the army in November 1776, but a lot had happened since then. Uh, Washington had grown, other generals had grown as well. Importantly, the Continental troops had been well trained by General von Steuben at Valley Forge, and they were a much better fighting force now. But Lee didn't bother to investigate into that. He thought it was the same situation back in uh, November 1776, and he even went to Congress and, and insulted Washington, saying he's not worth you know, commanding a sergeant's guard. And Washington learned about some of these insults, so he were, the parties were on, on their guard after that. Why did Washington put up with him? Because he was, he respected Lee as a, uh, a general, 
and uh, Lee did help him out in a couple of situations, and, and uh, his other generals are not that experienced. Uh, so he did need an experienced general. So what, what all happened in the war while he was, in the, you refer to the play Hamilton in your book, and in, in there at one point Thomas Jefferson comes back from Europe and says, what did I miss? So what did, what did Clinton miss while he was what did in Lee prison? Missed, Lee uh, missed while he was in prison. Well, he missed, again, Trenton and, and uh, Battle of Princeton, which were great American victories, and then Howe did try to invade Philadelphia and succeeded. He won the Battle of Brandywine, uh, ultimately won the Battle of Germantown, and and took over Philadelphia, and then the Americans went into winter quarters at uh, Valley Forge. Many suffered very badly, but uh, they got a lot of recruits in the spring, and von Steuben was doing great training. So Washington was in a position where he had suffered these losses, suffered the loss of New York, suffered the loss of Philadelphia. He was being criticized. Uh, other, some congressional delegates were saying that Horatio Gates and other Continental Army commanders should you know, command the army and not Washington. So Washington was looking for a success. He was looking for uh, something that he could put his name to. And so uh, when Lee came back and he was put back in charge, how did the other officers take it who had been fighting for Washington in the last year and a half? Not, not real happy about it, I think. <clears throat> um, now what happened was in, the French joined the war. Word came to North America that the French allies were coming over with a large fleet, and um, the British were horrified, and the decision was made, let's got to evacuate Philadelphia, British Army needs to evacuate Philadelphia, and we'll concentrate our forces in New York. So Clinton uh, sent a lot of his troops by ship from Philadelphia to New York, but couldn't do most of it, so he had to take his, most of his British Army overland and marched them out of Philadelphia up to Sandy Hook, and then Lord Howe was going to come back with his ships and, and pick them up there and take them to New York. But he had to march a long way, and Washington asked his generals in council, should we attack the British Army? And Lee headed a, uh, a faction, actually a clear majority, that said, no, we should not attack them. We should make a bridge of gold and let them go to New York. We, that, that's fine. Uh, you know, we don't need to risk the Continental Army that we've built by uh, engaging in a general action with the British Army on, a, on the field, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. And um, <clears throat> Washington wasn't real happy about it <clears throat> and had them decide again, which was a message, hey, maybe uh, mm -hmm. I didn't like that first decision. <laughs> and a couple of other generals thought that Washington should have been more aggressive, Lafayette, Anthony Wayne. Hamilton was a, a colonel, an aide, and uh, the uh, generals got the idea then, and even Lee, they agreed, okay, let's send out a, uh, a strong contingent to attack the rear of the British Army as it's retreating. Did and Washington tend to be ambiguous in his instructions? He wasn't, especially in the first part of the war, he was not uh, dictatorial. Uh, he was still feeling his way, and... Um, especially in dealing with Lee, who was an experienced officer, he didn't dictate him to what he should do. Uh, he was you know, getting stronger, and finally, you know, he sent, sent the message of what he wanted to do, so they got the message. I'm sorry, I, you started to set the stage for the Battle of Monmouth, and I interrupted you. Go right, ahead. and um, so uh, <coughs> Lafayette was originally picked to lead uh, the uh, contingent of American troops detachment that would attack the British rear. And Lafayette was very young. He was in you know, early 20s. He'd never seen any military action in Europe. 
he got a little bit of training in France. Um, so uh, it was somewhat questionable of Washington to pick him. Lee actually said, no, let Lafayette have it. It was a small contingent. But then Washington kept adding to the contingent. And it got pretty big, about 5,000 men. And Lee finally said, this is enough for my dignity to lead. And so he pressed to take it over. Lafayette resisted. Washington was in a quandary, didn't know what to do. Finally decided, well, Lee's the senior general. I have to give it to him. Was there a clear plan that Lee was supposed to follow? Good question. And the answer to that is no. Lee shows up having not been with these troops. He didn't know even know most of the officers. No one knew him. And he shows up uh, near where the battle would be fought, fought the, in a couple of days and takes command from Lafayette and calls his troops together, uh, officers together and says, well, I don't really have a plan. We'll play it by ear. He didn't even reconnoiter the field of battle the next day. By contrast, Clinton reconnoitered his position and thought he was in a very strong position. Who attacked who? Well, uh, Washington, uh, Lee was under orders to attack the British Army, and he fully intended to do so. Uh, and uh, he went out in the morning with his troops, but he got confusing uh, intelligence. The British Army had um, been marching away towards Sandy Hook, and uh, the intelligence was, well, not all of the British Army had left, and there was a large contingent still there. And no one thought it was a good idea for Lee to take his detachment cross these swampy ravines, and then if they were going to be attacked by the British, they might have to retreat over the ravines. That could be a disaster. So there was some delay there. Finally, Lee just said, let's just go forward. Uh, Clinton was mostly marching away. There was a small contingent of about 1,500 men who were left behind, the rear guard. And Lee said, all right, I'm going to take that rear guard. And he said, uh, we're going to, Wayne, I want you to amuse the British, those 1,500 men, and we're going to send a larger detachment around the left and surround them. That's Mad Anthony Wayne? Mad Anthony Wayne, that's right, from Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, it, was, it was a good plan, but Clinton had other ideas. He had learned that Lee showed up with his detachment, and he stopped his march and turned his men around and drove them as fast as possible back to where Lee was. He drove them so fast that about 60 soldiers died of heat fatigue. It was so hot that day, and they were had the big uniforms on and, and marching really fast. But he really, it was a rare chance for him to attack the Continental Army, and so he wanted to take advantage of it. The Continental Army was outnumbered? Uh, not uh, Initially, it was about even. Uh, once uh, the Clinton's uh, force, that was uh, the first division that he turned around, if then but by the end of the day, they were heavily outnumbered. But um, again, Lee was about to uh, do his maneuver to capture that rear guard. Then he sees the British force in the distance trying to outflank Lafayette's men. So he changes his mind and then goes to take some troops to support Lafayette. Just as he did that, he sent a message to two of his top generals, General Scott and General Maxwell. They commanded more than half of his men. And they said, I'm going to the right, you stay in the center. And his two aides came back and said, I can't find them. Their, the generals and their men have disappeared without saying where they went. And Lee was aghast. And here you have uh, the cream of the British Army coming down towards Washington's men, uh, Lee's men. And now Lee is heavily outnumbered. 
and he's got this ravine, swampy ravine behind him. He has no idea where the bulk of his other troops are. He doesn't want to retreat, but he decides it's really in the best interest of the Continental Army to retreat. And really he had no choice, so he did retreat. And um, it was, a, you know, not when you retreat like that and you're not planning for it, it's not always a pretty picture, but they did a pretty good job. They, most of the troops kept in good marching order. The British were chasing after them. And Lee organized a defense at what's called the Hedgerow. Before that happened, Washington comes on the battlefield and he sees all these retreating men and he gets angry. And uh, he stops this uh, drummer boy and the drummer boy says, uh, Yes, uh, the whole army's retreating. Washington was outraged and had the drummer boy put under guard not to tell anyone else. And so Washington goes up to uh, Lee in the field and said, what is the matter of this? Why are you retreating, sir? And Lee was taken aback. He thought he did a good job by retreating. And one of Lee's faults was he never kept Washington abreast of uh, the developments. So Washington had no idea. And the two had a sharp exchange. Um, and But Washington did say to Lee, all right, go back to the hedgerow and organize the defense there. And uh, there was a, what, uh, Lee put up a very strong defense and Clinton was in the middle of it and it could have been easily killed. Uh, and the American army fought well there, well enough so that Lee's troops retreated safely across this bridge and the troops at the hedgerow also retreated safely across the bridge. So no American units were left behind, stranded or anything like that. Lee expected to be congratulated, and instead he was berated. That's right. In That's public. Right. Yes, and he, uh, you know, he was a very proud man. He had a lot of experience as a military commander. That was his uh, persona, and yet he's being upbraided in public among all these other officers in attendance. So it was very difficult for him. That would be a problem for him after the battle. Now um, Washington shows up with the rest of the troops. Half, the rest of the half the Continental Army takes a strong position behind the bridge on a ridge and uh, the British Army come to the ridge they're exhausted they've been marching all day and they decide they see that strong defensive position all of uh, Washington's troops and they decide I think we've had enough they had chased the American Army for several miles and um, Clinton said our my main goal was to protect the baggage train of the British Army and uh, they weren't going to you know, obviously at this point the American army was not going to threaten the baggage train. So he decided to retreat. Washington, meanwhile, sent Anthony Wayne with some troops to attack some British soldiers who had not got the message about retreating over the ravine. And uh, actually, the did a, Continental troops did a nice job. Overall, the Continental Army fought very well in the Battle of Monmouth. So the, the training that von Steuben did at Valley Forge really paid off. Did Washington essentially shove Lee aside and say, I'm in charge now? He did. He did. After, after the hedgerow, he did. And Lee was uh, uh, basically without a command after that. Did, uh, did Washington take him, uh, like strip him of his duties after that? What did he do? He didn't. The next day, uh, he did not strip him of his duties, and he still had Lee as administrative head for, you know, for, for the camp, so nothing had changed. But there were rumors circulating. Oh, Lee lost the best opportunity the American army ever had of crushing the British army. Bunch of nonsense. But that was the rumor that was going around. Uh, Hamilton was circulating at John Lawrence, uh, another aide for Washington, uh, many of the Continental Army officers, and then it gets down to the troops. And Lee heard about that, and his uh, 
few aides who were still his defenders heard about that. He got upset. So Lee, uh, as often the case, when he's not in battle, he was very good and composed in battle, but now he's not in battle, and uh, he writes Washington three very nasty letters, insulting Washington. One sentence, he insulted him three times. It was quite a performance. And uh, his commanding officer. His commanding officer, and he basically made it a contest. Let's I let's do a court martial, and we'll see who America thinks is his best commander. And uh, not a good idea, Charles Lee, and he came to regret that. So Washington agreed to court-martial him. He had heard from commanders, Charles Scott, remember him? He was one of the ones who retreated. Scott told him, oh, uh, Lee, uh, we retreated, there was unwarranted retreat, and he put all the blame on Lee when it was really Scott's fault. There are uh, accounts, history books you read today that, that describe Washington as coming in and seizing command and turning the tide of the battle and winning the battle. Is, he did. you have a different view? Or? No, no. He did a good job with that. His force of personality did help to turn the tide, and he, he did a good, good job with that. Uh, Lee was still making a defense at the hedgerow, which was the key defensive position, but no, Washington did a good job, um, and he was complimented by all sides for that. So Lee, Lee requested a court-martial. He did. How, how common were court-martials during the war? Uh, not totally uncommon. Um, <coughs> it seems like a lot of the enemies that Washington had wound up in court-martial. <laughs> <laughs> One guy was um, uh, convicted of being drunk, and it's not clear that he was drunk in, in, the, in a battle, uh, but he wasn't a Washington fan. Uh, Benedict Arnold was actually court-martialed. That's one of the reasons that led him to turn traitor, that he was conniving with some army contracts when he was commander, continental commander at Philadelphia. And uh, he was court-martialed, and evidence probably showed he was you know, violating some rules, and Washington gave him a slap in the wrist, but Arnold was so proud he didn't even want to take that. So there, there were some uh, court-martials. And what was a court-martial like? I mean, what were the charges and what was Lee's defense? The court-martial, there were three charges. One was that uh, Lee failed to attack the enemy pursuant to orders of Washington. Two, an unwarranted retreat and a sometimes disorderly retreat. And three, insulting the commander-in-chief. And I focus mostly on the first two. And I have a whole a chapter on, on each one of the, uh, of the charges on the um, failing to attack the enemy, one of the questions was, did Washington give Lee discretion on whether or not to retreat or not? And as Charles Lee colorfully said, if he gave me discretion, that's the end of the story. It's like uh, you know, beating a dead man. You, you can't kill someone after you beat him. You know? If I have discretion, I can do anything I want. <laughs> and in fact, uh, the, looks, the orders did give Lee discretion. They basically said, Washington said, you are to attack the enemy, and he seemed to want to attack the rear of the enemy. It didn't look like he wanted to get into a whole general action where both armies uh, as a whole are going at each other. He wanted a, a nice little small victory that he could claim credit for, but not risk the entire army. And, but he said if there are important circumstances that arise that make that not a good idea, then you're authorized not to attack the enemy. So it looked like he had, that's what exactly what happened in the field. Um, and secondly, he did try to attack the enemy. I mean, he had a plan to attack the enemy. He was about to attack the enemy, but then he found out two of his generals with more than half his troops had disappeared from the field. So then it 
was a wise move to retreat. Sometimes retreating is the best move you can make. Did he conduct his own defense? He did. They didn't have lawyers back then, so the generals all did their own defense. And he was very good, uh, <coughs> uh, incisive. Uh, it's, the court-martial record is terrific because it's uh, 200 pages. Oh, it's a transcript? You transcript. Read? It's yeah. published in the New York Historical Society in 1871. Uh, and uh, you can really get a good sense of the battle because you're getting it in live time. This, the court-martial took place only a couple of weeks after the battle ended. And you have all the main officers, especially the first part of the battle, testifying. Um, did the public know about this? They did. And it was a big deal. Uh, as uh, one Thomas Fleming, an American Revolutionary War historian, said, it was as if Dwight Eisenhower court-martialed uh, Omar Bradley in World War II, or Ulysses Grant had court-martialed Tecumseh Sherman in the Civil War. So there are newspaper reports? Yes, yeah. What do they read like? <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> they didn't get too involved because they didn't have the transcript. But uh, it was you know, mentioned a lot in letters and, and uh, um, a lot of uh, uh, anger against Lee at this time because he was seen as attacking Washington. Washington was starting to be revered as the, the one man who could uh, bring everyone together and, and win the battle for independence. And so he was uh, made a mistake of making it a political battle instead of a military one. On pure military grounds, uh, you know, Lee had the better argument. As, and, and also on the retreat. Uh, was it an unfounded retreat? I don't think so. And uh, there were some units that were, you know, straggling a little bit, but it was incredibly hot and no retreat is perfect and no units were ever, you know, stranded or left behind. So um, he was, but he was convicted on both of those grounds. And he was also convicted for insulting the commander, which was justified. He did insult the commander. What was his punishment? His co punishment was one year suspension. Now you might say, all right, he didn't attack the enemy pursuant to orders. He retreated in front of the enemy. Why would he only get one year? And the answer was the office, the court martial board probably felt he wasn't really guilty of the first two charges, but he was guilty of insulting the commander. So let's give him a punishment fit for that crime one-year suspension from the Continental Army. You, you su suggest in the book that Alexander Hamilton may have lied under oath during well, the Well, a lot of historians trial. think that Hamilton may have lied, but I actually argue he didn't. Mm. Uh, he told the truth on the discretion point, and that really supported Lee. Where, but Lee and Hamilton really went at it throughout the trial, because what Hamilton said was, <clears throat> well, when I saw Lee, he lost his composure. He was talking, he was, he was making indistinct orders, he was contradictory orders, he lost his composure, and Lee could not take that at all. That was his main persona as a calm battlefield commander, which he was. So every officer who uh, he uh, cross-examined, did you notice my composure? Was, did I not have a level head? And everyone would agree he did, except for Hamilton and John Lawrence. They both... Um, uh, went at each other. John Lawrence, of course, was highly uh, promoted in the Hamilton play, and he was a very intelligent, sharp young man who knew many different languages. And uh, but he he was yeah he was a real Lee hater. And John Lawrence and uh, and Lee had a duel. They did. Uh, so to set the stage, after the court martial, Congress had to approve the verdict, and uh, so there was Lee was trying to 
work with his uh, supporters in Congress and others who were Washington supporters working with their uh, delegates, and it was a pretty close affair, but ultimately Congress voted to uphold all the verdicts, and that really enraged Lee. And after the um, uh, approval, there was a lot of threats of duels and actual duels. Uh, Lee and Lawrence actually fought a duel, not because Lee insulted Lawrence. Lee actually wrote a scribe attacking Washington, and Lawrence went challenged uh, Lee to a duel to defend Washington's honor. Under the code of dueling, that was not permitted. But Lee didn't raise that objection and agreed to duel. And actually, Lawrence wounded him in the side. Not seriously, but did wound him. Uh, Lee also received a challenge from von Steuben, General von Steuben. Lee, as usual, was caustic in the uh, trial and uh, said that Steuben was a distant spectator during the battle. It was true. He had almost no role. But Steuben was insulted, and so he uh, challenged Lee to a duel. The two managed to avoid one. And uh, Anthony Wayne is another one who challenged That's right. Him. Pennsylvania's Anthony Wayne. Uh, remember, he commanded the troops that were supposed to amuse the uh, British guard, the rear guard, not drive them from the field, keep them engaged while Lee went around. And, but Wayne kept saying, I need more troops. Give me more troops, General Lee. I need more troops. And in the court-martial, Lee said, oh, I laughed at Wayne when he made all these demands. You know, he didn't know the whole situation, which he didn't. Wayne did not know the whole situation. If you could talk to Charles Lee, what would you ask him? Uh, I guess I would ask him what he was thinking when he wrote his plan. I mean, what, what was his real motivation? There were, I, that's one of my longest chapters, what were his motivations? I think it's you know, appropriate to rely on his own words, but it would be nice to really get into his mindset. You're working on another book? Uh, I am, yes. I'm always working, and one that um, interaction of the American Revolution and uh, slavery. We've been speaking with Christian McBurney. He is the author of this book, George Washington's Nemesis, the Outrageous Treason and Unfair Court-Martial of Major General Charles Lee during the Revolutionary War. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate being here. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.